Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been 40 years now, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15% off your subscription. That's Fangoria.com, promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15%. You may have heard that Stephen King's The Stand, the miniseries that I collaborated with the boss on, uh, is available now on Blu-ray, much to my surprise. A couple of months ago, I thought it would never happen because it was shot on 16-millimeter film, and all of the post-production was done on standard-definition video in the pre-HD days. But Paramount and CBS Home Entertainment have gloriously restored it, gone back to the negative. It really looks far better than ever. So, we have one for one of you listeners to the Postmortem Podcast. So, all you have to do is answer this question, and the answer is in today's episode of the Postmortem AMA. Who are the three directors I interviewed on a roundtable conversation that I did way back in 1981 called Fear on Film? If you know that answer, send it to Joe Russo Tweets on Twitter or Mick Garris PM on Twitter or Instagram Mick Garris PM as well. From the world headquarters of Nice Guy Productions, overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the Fun Size Postmortem AMA, where you can ask Mick anything. And here to ask me your questions is producer Joe. So, Joe, what do we got on tap today? We've got a lot of stuff on tap today. Oh, uh, oh yeah. So, so last weekend was just Monster Palooza, son of Monster yeah, Palooza, son of Monster Palooza. And uh, you know, we walked the show floor. So this question seemed very appropriate. Uh-huh. Uh, at Brian Nodum uh, asks, how often do you hit the convention center circuit, and would you ever come out for a Midwest one? I rarely do the conventions, you know, sometimes uh, if they're screening a movie of mine or uh, uh, there's a reason for me to be on a panel or to do like an evening with Mick or something, I'll do it very occasionally. I go to a lot of film festivals. I I do that much more. But one of the things about conventions that is expected of the guests is to have a time at a table where you sell your autograph. 
And it's something I, I totally get that. And I'm glad that there's an opportunity for a lot of the people, or the creators, particularly in front of the camera, to be able to make a living doing this stuff or, or uh, support their living with it. Um, but for me, I'm uncomfortable with that part of it. And I don't want to be assigned to a table. And, and I really, I've never asked anybody to pay for my autograph. Yeah, that's also one of the reasons we don't do a Patreon for the show or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think people should be paying for, for certainly for me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to, to make a, uh, a living doing what I do. And uh, I don't really want to be sitting in a gallery of people who are being paid for their autographs and their pictures and things like that. It just For me, I don't want to charge anybody for that. And I don't want any fan to have to make a decision, do I want to pay for this one or that one? Right. And as a behind-the-camera guy, it's just, you know, it just makes it me makes, a little bit queasy. total sense to me. Yeah. So, so, Brian, tell your Midwest conventions... Uh, that they need to do an evening with Mick Garris if you want Mick to come <laughs> I'm out. I'm not asking for that, but, <laughs> but I mean, I do occasional Yeah, trips. no, you, you go a couple times yeah, a year. To but usually I, I have something to do with something to do with it but uh in son of monster palooza we just went for it's fun. in town yeah they gave me a couple of tickets and it, it was really fun and i, and I mean, saw a lot is, of friends you, yeah there. you just like you like to go you like yeah. to look at the art you like i'm to look a fan at the, yeah the what's makeup special and... about the monster palooza shows is a lot of the creators are there the makeup yeah. effects guys yep. you know sculptors like casey wong and and uh makeup effects guys like greg canham and tony gardner and the kyoto brothers and yeah a lot of a lot of friends there joe dante was there yeah. so it's and it's in town you know it's a 10 minute drive to go there and right, so it's, right. it's fun right yeah no i i agree i agree so at bark eater productions asks when you watch movies do you watch them as an audience member or as a filmmaker with a technical eye i really do my best to remove myself from the filmmaker status and put myself into the audience status. You know, I don't want to look at how a movie's made, and I don't unless it's not doing its job properly. You know, there's nothing more than I, that I love than being sucked into a movie and to see a film and just be absorbed by it. I don't want to be outside the movie. I want to be inside the movie. And so as a viewer, I want, I want to be a participant and not an analyst. Do you ever find that a... Maybe a shot that's too flashy pulls you out, or if if it's not in service of the story, uh, and sometimes it'll pull me out and go, "Ooh, that's great!" But then I go, "Oh yeah, what was going on?" Right? <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly can do that, um, and it it can be either really masturbatory or it can be something that elaborates the emotional impact of the film, just like the, a certain lens choice or a color choice or whatever. And sometimes drawing attention to itself is part of the style and mm. part of what the whole filmmaking experience is about. But as long as it doesn't feel for its own merits and right. not in service of the story being told. That makes sense. Well, let's move on to the next question. At M2 Smelly. M2 Smelly? M2 I don't think smelly. I want to answer that uh, question. No, I think yeah. you will. Oh, okay. Uh, have you ever wanted to direct a non-horror film like Wes Craven's Music of the Heart? 
Well, I'm not too interested in doing music of the heart, too. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I do love all genre and non-genre. Um, when you have some amount of success in the horror genre in particular, you become painted as a horror filmmaker. And mm-hmm. mine was even more limited. I was a Stephen King horror filmmaker. Right. So I don't mind because better known for doing something well than not at all. Uh, but it does put you in that horror jail, which a lot of people think is a gutter. And I, I'm very proud of my brethren and sistren in arms in, in the horror genre doing something special and intelligent and, and uh, unique. But yeah, sure, I would love to work outside of that. Uh, I have a couple of times. I was surprised at how fantastic the experience of shooting Once Upon a Time was, mm-hmm. doing modern-day fairy tales yeah. uh, for television as part of somebody else's series. And I had some of the best experiences doing that. The most emotional scene I've ever directed was a scene uh, in Once Upon a Time where uh, Belle is dying beauty to uh, Bobby Carlyle's beast, is dying and he's not because he doesn't age and she does. And that sequence was one of the most powerful emotional scenes I've ever directed. And I wouldn't have done it had it been in, uh, in another kind of horror film or something. I also did a mini series called the judge. I'm a real legal thriller fan as we talked about. Yeah. Last time I think. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, that really was a lot of fun and at first I thought, wow, what are we going to do after lunch? There's no effects, there's no chase scenes, there's <laughs> no makeups. There's no... And then I found out um, what working with uh, big television stars was like. Yes, <laughs> so, it, moves, it moves at its own pace. Yeah, and I really had a good time with that, but it was not a rating success, and so that never uh, repeated itself. But I would love to work outside of the horror genre, although I'm quite happy to work within it. Do you ever feel, though, I mean, I always think that horror is such a interesting intersection of multiple genres, because, you know, you have comedy, you have drama, you have romance, you have, you know, sexuality, you have scares, you have thrills. I mean, literally, is a confluence of a bunch of different genres. I mean, do you think that helped prepare you for when you did those dramatic series? Well, it's one of the things that keeps me interested in it. Right. Um, I don't know... I would like to think that all of those elements were elements that have uh, been a part of my work since the very beginning. Right. But um, it, on the other side, it prepared me to do something outside of the horror genre. Right, right. Because, uh, you know, good horror is good drama first. We've mm-hmm. said that before mm-hmm. and talked about that on numerous occasions. And so good storytelling is good storytelling. Yeah. You know, a drama isn't nearly as hard to make as a horror film because of the added elements of tension and suspense. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard Landis say that several times, that, that dramas are much easier than comedy and horror. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely, because there's uh, mechanical aspects at work that don't come into play when you're doing a drama right. or don't necessarily come into play. Um, and... I I love drama. I love all kinds. I love comedy. I've only been able to do it a couple of times. My first movie, Critters 2, is the only real comedy that I've done from beginning to end. And it's very funny. <laughs> I hope so. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'd love to, to get outside of horror jail, but I am completely 
sanguine about working within a, a genre of which I'm very proud. See, I told you M2 Smelly had a good question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Smelly. <laughs> All right. Uh, at Nutdale asks, and this is kind of in the same I don't know ballpark. if I want to answer Nutdale either. You, you but, do. Yeah. You do. Oh, okay. This is Ask Myth Anything. <laughs> oh, that's right. I keep forgetting. What is your favorite Western? You know, I'm not a huge Western fan. I'm not either. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't really discover that. You know, when I was a kid, Westerns were popular on television, and my older brother was a Western fan and sure. all that stuff. But it never really appealed to me. But later on, I discovered Howard Hawks and John Ford and mm-hmm. all of those classic Westerns of the, of the 50s. And 60s, uh, Sergio Leone, of course. You know, the Leone films are... The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is way up there. But I love Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead, and not Mm. just because I'm in it. Sure. (laughs) Right, right, yes. I have a cameo in a a 10-gallon hat and a big droopy mustache (laughs) and lots of dirt that we shot in Mescal, Arizona, uh, outside of Tucson. Yeah. But um, it's really funny. It's really smart, and it really goes for the spaghetti western vibe. Yeah, but it has it's satirical without it being a comedy. Uh, and I know Sam had a lot of trouble working on it. Uh, um, he was working with big movie stars at the time, Russell Crowe and Sharon Stone and Gene Hackman, and he'd never done a movie star movie before that. And uh, I don't think he had the best time doing it, but. It's a great um, underrated film, underseen mm. film. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't seen it, you know, the horror fans who love Sam Raimi should check it out and see something completely different from him. I also know that you are a big fan of Hateful Eight. Which, I love Hateful Eight. Which yeah. is very much a Western, too. Very much. Snow, so. but it's still very much a Western. Yeah, it's sort of like a stage play in mm-hmm. 70 millimeter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I really like that. It's a Tarantino film, and... And I really love his work. I think he's very much a, an icon of filmmaking. Um, he's, he's unique unto himself. A lot of imitators and none of them really hit it. Uh, and so a Western in the hands of, of Quentin Tarantino is pretty magical to me, too. I agree. I agree. Well, so for our main topic today, I want to go back in time, back to back to the PR days. Let's go back to your childhood. childhood <laughs> no, not that far. Not oh, that far. Okay. Uh, we're going to go back to the early '80s to something that constantly pops up on the postmortem <laughs> social media I know uh, because people is. seem to always discover it. Yeah, uh, and and they always <laughs> seem to respond to it. And I, I, you know, I just rewatched it in advance of this, um, but I want to talk about fear on film. Ah. Uh, and and how that came together. So it was. So we'll set the stage. It was an interview with you, John Carpenter, John Landis, and David Cronenberg. Yes. And what a what a combination. Well, minus the me, I was the interviewer. I wasn't a filmmaker. <laughs> well, yet. but but only time but, would, uh, would prove otherwise. But, uh, uh, well, yeah, <laughs> I was doing specialized publicity uh, for Avco Embassy Pictures which at the time was headed by Bob Ramey, later became the president of the Motion Picture Academy and the like. He left, Univer- uh, he left Avco Embassy to take over the same position at Universal Studios. And he brought me over because I was the only person at a studio doing specialized genre publicity for science fiction, fantasy, and horror films. And I had worked on The Howling and The Fog and Escape from New York, things like that. So... 
what was going on at Universal was because of Bob's sensibility from Avco Embassy, the success of the horror films, he brought over David Cronenberg for, uh, to do Videodrome. And uh, An American Werewolf in London had just come out um, and they were making The Thing. Mm-hmm. So I knew David from Cronenberg from when I was doing publicity at Avco, and Landis and I had been friends for a while before that, and I'd worked on a couple of Carpenter films already, Halloween two and three, and The Fog, and so I thought, what a great idea to get these guys together, sell Universal the way they sold in the '30s as the house of cinematic horror, mm-hmm. and. Here they are with three of the brightest lights in the genre. If I could get them together for a panel and have that conversation, it, it would promote Universal's upcoming horror slate of these filmmakers' films and make it like a television special. We would give it to stations around the country so they could show, they could take clips of it, put it on their news, mm. or they could run it at 11.30 at night or you know whenever they wanted on the weekend or anything. So it got played all over the place. The USA Network was brand new at the time, and they played it constantly. This was before, I think. Does Universal own USA? I think they do. Uh, they uh, do. They yeah, do. so yeah. this was before they owned it. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that I had been doing the Z Channel show before that, so I had had some experience doing the interviews, including two of those three before. So... Um, it was a promotional thing, but it was also something for us, the horror fans, mm-hmm. where we get these three, even at the time, they were like the biggest names around Absolutely. in horror. Yeah. And again, iconic filmmakers within the genre. And it was an opportunity to sit down and talk with them and share it on a mainstream stage with people who were outside of the mainstream. Yeah. One of the things that struck me that was really interesting was they talked a lot about uh, censorship versus the, the MPA versus Canada and the, right. the different ratings and such and the like. And But what was really interesting was Cronenberg basically predicted the PG-13 rating on Fear on Film. Was that it, before the PG-13? It was. Oh, it was. wow. He's like, he's like, there's probably going to have to be something that's like 14 and over. Wow. Uh, it, was, uh, it was really kind of funny. I haven't funny. seen it in a couple yeah, of decades. No, I'm so. sure. sure. Uh, it might be worth a rewatch. We'll, yeah. we'll, post it, we'll post it on Twitter and Instagram and such. Um, Great. Um, so people Great. can see we'll it. Great. We'll link it. it. Yeah. But, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I just thought it was, uh, it was so funny to hear them talking about that. And then them t- like two or three years ahead of the PG-13 rating, Predict it. Smart guys. David has always been a seer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. The The, the other thing that was really striking too that I thought was funny was uh, Carpenter said very, very emphatically that before the reshoots, he considered The Fog a kid's movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, which is which is something that when my wife heard that she was like, "That's ridiculous!" Like, she, she, she. <laughs> well, what happened was they went out and tested the fog, and it was kind of limp because he wanted right. to make, uh, you know, a 1940s Val Luton movie mm. that was subtle and and the fears were from what was unseen, right? But filmgoers attitudes had changed so much, and they'd been so accustomed to right. more explicit horrors in their movies that it lie a little flat so it went from being a pg movie and till he went out and reshot much more explicit violent scenes to make it work one thing that we were talking about though that we thought was interesting maybe it would have fallen into still the pg category but there's that whole affair between tom atkins and 
Jamie Lee Curtis in the movie, and yeah. I was like, I was like, that couldn't have been a reshoot because it feels so. No, it was ingrained in the yeah, movie. For yeah, yeah. Sure. Only so, the violence stuff. Right, it was, was just the violence that yeah. was reshot. Yeah, the Rob Bottin makeups. Right, yeah. right, right, and, and it's all it's all it's all good and fun. Um, but, yeah, but, yeah, uh, it is. I just thought it was so so interesting that that that's how he perceived the movie originally. Was it something something for kids? I'm like, well, yeah, okay, that's John's version of a kids movie. Well, it was my version <laughs> of a kids movie too. I grew yeah. up on those Val Luton films on TV. Yeah, and that's true them. that's yeah. true well i mean maybe it's hard for me to separate what i know of the fog and what it would have been otherwise right. you know right but um, it was interesting how open and honest john was about that that it yeah. really wasn't working and he decided you know it's time to make this a contemporary r-rated film all three filmmakers were really candid about uh changes they made to their movies for for reasons like that uh, uh landis talked about taking probably the quote-unquote scariest scene in American Werewolf out of the movie and it being something he regrets. Um, yeah. Now I'm like, I wish I could see what that was. <laughs> yeah, uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just think it's, it must be really funny, though, that you know here we are 40 years later and people are still sharing and resharing that uh, clip. It's pretty yeah. incredible when I look at it and go, who's that kid? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Who are those kids? Yeah, right, yeah. All, all of you guys, yeah. yeah. <laughs> None of us had gray hair then. No, no, you did not. <laughs> Everybody had glasses, which was except me. <laughs> that's true. That's true. They had these big, big glasses. It's really, it really fun. Yeah. Anyway, we'll post it. Everybody can check it out. But that's that's fear on film. Thank you for diving back into that. All right, and thanks for joining us for another postmortem AMA. You can send your questions on Twitter to at Mick Garris PM and on Instagram to at Mick Garris PM and on Twitter to Joe Russo tweets. And we'll have a bunch more questions next time. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Mick. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.